the FBI did something which considered by the scholars to be completely unpredictable, which is they went through both structural and contextual and kind of retained their essence while kind of fundamentally changing themselves at the same time. And you know, the authors, you know, they interviewed 138 FBI officials. They reviewed 45 9-11 related testimonies. And what they found is there was this rapid emergence of two clear but distinct identities and eventually you know, one new unified identity in the FBI. Uh, but some changes were terrorism cases were centralized at headquarters. And this was a big departure from the way that the FBI normally operated. For almost all Americans, 9-11 is the seminal event in the history of our country. For the first time since December 7, 1941, the U.S. mainland was attacked. 9-11 unleashed forces and changes in America, unlike since the 20 years of the Great Depression and World War II. This special six-part podcast series will look at these changes from the perspective of compliance professionals who are impacted by 9-11 and the changes to their areas of compliance. Hello, this is Vin DeCiani, founder and president of Affiliated Monitors. On September 11, 2001, it was a few years before I started the company. I was still working as an attorney in a Boston law firm. That morning, I was taking a deposition in our conference room at 50 Rose Wharf, which looked out at the Boston Harbor towards Logan Airport. It was around 8.45 a.m. when we looked out at the airport and noticed that all of the air traffic had stopped. Since Logan's a busy airport, it was very strange and disconcerting. Even the usual boat traffic on the harbor had stopped that morning. We then noticed some snipers on the top of the new U.S. courthouse, which we faced. We knew something was wrong then. When we finally started watching the news, reality hit home. I lost my childhood best friend that day, who was killed when a plane hit the second tower. It was such a profoundly sad day that will remain with me forever. I hope you find this special podcast series moderated by Tom Fox and sponsored by Affiliated Monitors to cause you to remember that impactful day. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Looking Back on 9-11. Today, I have with me Scott Moritz. Scott is with FTI. And I wanted to visit with Scott about some of his reflections from that day and talked about the changes that were brought about by the FBI. First of all, thank you for joining me and taking the time to visit with me on this very personal project where I'm commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Well, thanks, Tom. And I think this is really great that you're doing this. And, and I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. So thank you. Scott, what was your job? Where were you on the morning of 9-11? So on 9-11, I was working in forensic accounting as a partner in an accounting firm. And then physically, the offices were at 330 Madison Avenue, which is about, you know, for people that don't know the city, it's about two miles north of the Trade Center. Uh, you know, so it, interestingly, in you know, 1993, when I was with the FBI, I was one of hundreds of FBI agents involved in operations related to the first attack on the Trade Center and the oil plot to blow up the Lincoln and Holland tunnels. 
uh, New York City landmarks and the building I felt you know, personally offended by 26 Federal Plaza, which is where I went to work every day. You know, similarly, I was my first FBI field I office, I work counter-terror. Uh, so, you know, I do have some frame of reference then and now, and it's really, you know, kind of startling. It's just how many people, you know, that are living amongst us who have bad intent. And I think that's the sort of the, you know, one of the things that has affected me profoundly when, you know, when working counter-terror. So on the morning of 9-11, I was in my office on the ninth floor, 3.30 Madison, you know, several hundred other colleagues. You know, we didn't have televisions in the office. So when we first heard about the you know, first plane hitting uh, was really from people calling, you know, loved ones. In my case, my wife called me to tell me what was happening. You know, she, you know, kind of recognized it for what it is right away, which is, you know, this is this wasn't an accident. You know, there were certainly conflicting news accounts over the radio and television. And actually, most of the initial reports, at least in the New York area, were that a, a small private plane had accidentally hit one of the towers. Although there was one account that turned out to be the only accurate depiction of those early reports was it was a commercial airliner. But when the second plane hit, it was obvious what was happening to everybody. And as a result, I contacted members of our leadership team because, you know, we, we didn't really have a corporate security function. And yet there was several hundred people, you know, in our New York office that, you know, I felt responsible. So I contacted members of our leadership team, none of whom were located in New York. And the first thing I learned was that many of our, our leaders were actually in the air. So, because that's one thing that, you know, sort of is forgotten that day is just how many planes that were just circling and weren't able to land or being diverted. And our CEO and several other members of the senior leadership team were not contactable. But, you know, we had a conference call while we were, you know, I was sort of briefing the members of leadership that were available and talking about, well, what should we do? Should we send them home? Should we ask them to stay put? And about five or minutes, 10, five or six minutes into the call, the line went dead. And that coincided exactly with the collapse of the first tower. Apparently, the telecommunications equipment was sort of you know, on the roof of the tower and the line went dead. So, you know, at that point, there really wasn't a decision to make in terms of sending people home. The subways and the commuter trains, buses and all not emergency vehicles were, were not permitted to move. Nothing was moving. And around lunchtime, myself and somebody else who you might know, Marty Beagleman, who's a former postal inspector, he and I were working together at the time. We thought, you know, hey, maybe we'll go out and get lunch and then sort of try to you know, make it somewhat normal for everybody, lunch for you know, everybody. And so we walk out of the building and Marty was a step ahead of me and about to step onto the street when I saw movement and there was a stampede of hundreds of people running directly toward where Marty was about to step into the street. I kind of pulled him back onto the sidewalk as this wave of people ran by, wild-eyed and terrified, and there'd been a bomb threat for Grand Central. And, you know, that's one of the other things that, you know, you, you hear a lot about is that the incidence of bomb threats in a city, like, increased like a hundredfold that day. I don't know why. It's just, you know, kind of a weird byproduct of human nature. But we certainly, because we were right across from Grand Central, and that was people evacuating Grand Central. I'm not sure what they were doing there in the first place because trains weren't running, but they got out of there in, in a big hurry. I mean, normally when there's a bomb threat in anywhere, you know, it's a little bit more orderly than that, but it was a normal day. So we thought better of getting lunch for everybody. But, you know, what was you know, kind of the next thing that happened, which is really also you know, sort of an amazing, you know, at least my own recollections is there came a point where they evacuated all of the buildings in proximity to New York City landmarks. And you think about how many New York City landmarks there are. There weren't a lot of buildings that weren't asked to evacuate. And so they evacuated 
our building. It was probably two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And you don't really appreciate how many people are in New York City because at any given time, most of them are in their offices. But when they all come out of the building at the same time, it's like nothing you've ever seen. And, you know, so there was this huge procession of people emptying all the buildings at the same time. But the thing that really struck me, you know, other than the fact there are no vehicles and we're all just walking on the street together north and away from Grand Central, was that you could hear a pin drop. Nobody was really speaking. And if they were speaking, it was like they were in a library. And it was, it was just, you know, kind of really, I get just choked up just thinking about it, you know, right now, because there was good reason for people to be so reserved. And the other thing that day that, you know, sort of walking amongst us that, and I didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time, because I didn't understand it, is that some of the people walking were completely covered in head to toe in ash. And, you know, until I saw the footage later in the day, I didn't understand what I was looking at. But there were like hundreds of people covered head to toe in like that, you know, kind of white gray ash from the collapse of the towers. So it was really kind of an amazing thing. So and, and kind of the last sort of recollection from that day for me, and you know, listen, I, I was very fortunate that day to be as far away from the blast as I was, but being in the city that day certainly had a profound impact on me. So a group of us about around four o'clock in the afternoon, commuter transit opened back up and then we let everybody leave and made my way down to Penn Station. We walked because the subways were still not running. And about four or five of us were walking together over to Penn Station. And you have to walk across Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue is a very wide avenue where you could see all the way to the tip of, of Manhattan. And when we got there, we would just kind of glance down the street. We're all kind of still in a little bit in shock. And we all just stopped because what normally what we would see as we crossed over Fifth Avenue would be the Twin Towers. Of course, they were gone. And then we just saw the, the plume of smoke and ash hundreds of feet in the air. You know, and it was just, you know, it was really a sight I'll never forget, you know, what I was looking at. Scott, what did 9-11 mean for the FBI? 9-11 fundamentally changed the FBI overnight. Before getting into that, though, I'd just be remiss if I didn't take a moment to acknowledge FBI Special Agent Lenny Hatton, who died that day trying to to rescue people, and retired FBI Special Agent John O'Neill, who had only retired from the FBI a week or so earlier and he was the corporate security director of the Trade Center. They both died that day trying to rescue others. And the 16 FBI agents who have died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. So Godspeed to them. So, you know, for a long time following 9-11, there really was only one investigation in the FBI. It was you know, being worked in the 56 FBI field offices and just virtually every foreign legal attache office around the world. No drug cases, no bank robberies, no top 10 most wanted fugitives nothing but the attack on the Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the foiled attack on the White House, resulting in the Shanksville, Pennsylvania crash. So there was an academic study done on organizational design and identity and authored by Harvard Business School professors Ranjay Gulati, Ryan Raffaelli, and Jan Rifkin. And it was entitled Transforming the Federal Bureau of Investigation Outcome and Process Framing in the Context of a Strategic Change Initiative. And in it, the authors analyzed how the FBI transformed itself after 9-11. It was, it, was, it was kind of very interesting. And it posited that prior organizational studies 
organizational design would have suggested the FBI normally would have done one of three things, divided itself into two distinct agencies, which they referred to as structural ambidexterity, or create simultaneous frontline structures and processes to balance these two now competing missions, criminal enforcement and national security. And they refer to that as contextual ambidexterity, or simply refuse to take on the national security mandate from the president, which I think only an academic would have come up with that option because <laughs> that certainly was not an option. But instead, according to the authors, which was really kind of interesting, the FBI did something which considered by the scholars to be completely unpredictable, which is they went through both structural and contextual and kind of retained their essence while kind of fundamentally changing themselves at the same time. And you know, the authors, you know, they interviewed 138 FBI officials. They reviewed 45 9-11 related testimonies. And what they found is there was this rapid emergence of two clear but distinct identities and eventually, you know, one new unified identity in the FBI. Uh, but some changes were terrorism cases were centralized at headquarters. And this was a big departure from the way that the FBI normally operated, you know, FBI field offices are autonomous, and there's this office of origin system, which is the FBI field office that starts the case, runs the case, no matter what. And they bring in other field offices needed, but there was no precedent to this. So it, it, it made good sense for the, you know, to centralize these cases, obviously, at headquarters. And by staying as a single agency with a dual mission, one of the benefits to the FBI and to the law enforcement mission in general was that the FBI had better access to local law enforcement agencies and could take better advantage of cooperating defendants who may have information that could advance the national security mission. And I think that's proven to be a, a really effective model. The FBI significantly improved threat analysis following the creation of the National Directorate of Intelligence, the Field Intelligence Group, and probably most notably, the addition of embedded security analysts in each of the 56 FBI field offices. That is, you know, really the most important part of the FBI's transformation is how those that intelligence analysis has been effectively integrated into FBI operations. You know, the FBI no longer describes itself as a law enforcement agency, although that is clearly part of now this dual mission. They describe themselves as a threat-based, intelligence-led national security agency. It changed the FBI in a profound ways and continues to, you know, to be those same changes continue today. Scott, what changes did you see private sector or that you were involved with, which involve financial institutions really responding to the events around 9-11? You know, Tom, as a civilian, I don't consider myself to be directly involved in the fight against terror, although there was a lot of private sector change to contend with in the days and months following 9-11. You know, there is the passage of the USA Patriot Act. You know, really very significant changes that financial institutions and broker dealers had to make. The need to harden security of buildings, supply chains, and just across the country's critical infrastructure. And then, you know, the explosion of things like no-fly lists and watch lists and terrorist watch lists meant that a lot of banks, brokerage companies, building owners, they needed help navigating all of these things and very quickly. So I was very involved in assisting you know, companies meeting their increased anti-money laundering obligations and also security obligations. 20 years later, 
what are some of your reflections of not only that day, what do you think it's meant for America and, and maybe what it's meant for the roles that you and I have chosen in compliance, consulting the law as well? You and I were, were speaking earlier about something. It's just kind of reflecting on that day and the days that followed. You know, it's been 20 years, but it's still gut-wrenching. You know, it, it's still profound effect that it had on so many people. So in the, in the forward of the 9-11 commission report, it said, you know, 10 commissioners, you know, five Democrats and five Republicans chosen by elected, our elected leaders at the time of great partisan division have come together to present this report without dissent. And I, I was really struck by some of those words at a time of great partisan division. I mean, given what our country has been going through lately. And I remember so much of what happened on 9-11 and the days and months that followed was all, you know, obviously it was just horrid act committed by the worst human beings imaginable. And yet what was happening to the people calling from the floors trapped at the top of the trade center and from the hijacked aircrafts who were managing to make phone calls and call their loved ones. So I think about that and the tender mercies of strangers who like were consoling one another, you know, that day and the days that followed, you know, I remember my wife was in the grocery store and, and, and was just overcome with grief while just, you know, going through like this mundane task of getting groceries and a complete stranger just came up to her, hugged her and consoled her. And that was playing out all over them. And it was a phenomenal, you know, the best of human nature that really was tapped into, you know, and, and I also remember, you know, kind of the outpouring of love and compassion to the American people from every part of the world. So, you know, here's this act of absolute hatred and the responses, overwhelming outpouring of love and compassion that followed. You know, as a New Yorker, I, you know, experienced some of that outpouring firsthand. I mean, people wanted to connect with the people that they knew in New York from everywhere. And, you know, it was, a lot of it was just, you know, making sure that I was okay, my family was okay, and we were you know, not directly impacted, but a lot of it was also this need to connect with what was happening. And it was just an amazing, I think it was just this, it was heartwarming, but also like jarring at the same time. And it just sort of made me think of just the the, the sheer magnitude of what had happened. And, you know, also made me think of, you know, kind of the events of January 6th that were sickening and certainly not the best example of, of humanity that day. And it showed that we're again at a time of great partisan division. And I, I kind of hope that we can summon you know, some of that compassion and human kindness that followed 9-11 to, to, to heal what's going on in our country right now. Well, Scott, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this podcast, but I wanted to thank you for sharing your remembrances and what, looking back, what 9-11 meant for yourself, the FBI, and indeed America. Thanks again. Well, I, I thank you, Tom. Appreciate you having me on. Scott Moritz was an FBI agent working in Manhattan the morning of 9-11. He was deeply impacted by the events of that day. In his podcast, he talked about what it was like, both in the FBI office, outside on the street as people fled the scene, even walking home or walking to the train station where he looked down Fifth Avenue and there was a gaping hole where the Twin Towers had set. He talked about the changes that were brought about by the FBI and how many businesses can actually 
look at that from a business perspective as the case study in the Harvard Business Review that Scott quoted from. He talked about his colleagues who died on 9-11 and those who died thereafter from 9-11 related illnesses. And then he wrapped up by looking back on what his reminiscences are this year as we come up to the 20th anniversary. Obviously, they're very emotional and very poignant. One thing I would like to point out that I learned from Scott's visit with me was that many of the senior leaders of the FBI were actually traveling on that day. And Scott was a part of middle management, and they had to make decisions literally on the spot. They had some senior leadership available, but not all of the senior leadership team. And so that really brings up for me what I would like compliance practitioners to consider is, have you empowered your middle management to make very important decisions if there's a disaster, if there's a tragedy, if your senior leadership is not available to you for whatever reason? And I think that's an important lesson from the Manhattan office of the FBI that we can all take forward as we move into the 2021s and beyond. This series was produced by the team at One Stone Creative, proud partner of the Compliance Podcast Network. Listen to more excellent podcasts at compliancepodcastnetwork.net and learn about One Stone Creative at onestonecreative.net.